Hello everyone. My name is Randall Meyer and I'm a staff attorney at Baker Hostetler. Today I'm going to be moderating the panel on the Uber of the Skies. This topic is actually kind of uh, a, simple complex with a, co a simple concept with a complex story. In late 2014, a company called Flight Now, colloquially termed the Uber of the Skies, was poised to revolutionize air travel by allowing private pilots already traveling to a destination to share their costs with would-be fellow travelers. This was accomplished by a, an internet-based app that functioned as a, a ride-sharing bulletin board, so to speak. But Flight Now shut down operations after encountering regulatory hurdles put in place by the Federal Aviation Administration, upheld by the United States Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit, and denied review by the Supreme Court on a petition for certiorari. The Cato Institute was actually involved in the case at the Supreme Court stage and drafting an amicus brief in this case that touched on both the intriguing legal rules that allowed for these kinds of burdens to be put in place in the first place and in the contravention of longstanding common law. With us today to discuss the saga of the Uber of the Skies and sitting furthest away from me is Matt Voska and nearer me is Chris Cooperman. Matt is the COO of Bannerman Security and the former CEO and co-founder of Flight Now. Chris is an adjunct professor at the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University and the Senior Director of Strategy and Research at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. Matt and Chris will both give a brief introduction after me touching on different aspects of the story, followed by a half hour of moderated discussion and 15 minutes of Q&A from the audience. As far as Q&A, please do wait to be called on when it comes up. Wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and the audience watching online can hear the question, and please announce your name and affiliation. With that, I'll turn things over to Matt to get us started. Thanks so much, and thank you for having me. Um, so we started Flight Now really out of a, a personal need. Uh, I was in college at the time and a, a broke student who couldn't afford to do my favorite hobby. And with that, I thought, well, if I could just find other people to go flying with, I could split my cost. Now, we're talking about small planes here. These are four-seater Cessnas, single engine, uh, small planes that could take you from Boston to Martha's Vineyard. And the idea was a website, similar to a bulletin board, that pilots could post their flights on, and passengers who were looking to go the same direction could share that. So while we often get termed as the Uber of the skies, uh, it's more similar to just sharing the gas, um, splitting the cost of, of aviation. And for pilots, it's hugely helpful for a, an industry that is incredibly expensive to be able to reduce your costs up to 75%. So that's what really drove us to build it. And starting out of our, our dorm room, we ended up raising funding through Y Combinator, moved out to Silicon Valley to start growing the company. And then three days before we were expected to pitch the company to investors, we get an awful letter from the FAA. Uh, and that really kicked off this whole process. So from that, we started working with the Goldwater Institute. They helped us to appeal that decision, uh, the, the FAA's decision to shut us down. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into it a, a bit later, but just briefly talking about why that came up. Um, they said that the pilots who were splitting their costs were no different from an airline like United or Delta because they were advertising online and collecting some money. And that's what really uh, caused the whole debate. But uh, that, that's the background on Flight Now, and we're looking to get, uh, get a law passed that will allow flight sharing in the U.S. Yeah, and, and maybe to, to add to Matt's story to put, you know, the Flight Now's story in the context of the FAA's regulatory approach to flight sharing, but then also talk just a bit briefly about the, the impacts that both on uh, pilots and on passengers that a platform like this had, very briefly, but had, and the potential it's had, and the impact it's having in Europe. So this is something that is happening in Europe. But to put it in the regulatory context, one thing that Matt didn't mention is the, the company built their, their platform around existing interpretations of FAA regulations. So they built their company around what was commonly understood to be the FAA's approach to flight sharing. And they pushed the margin a bit by saying, instead of physical cork boards in airports all across the country, they're going to move it onto phones 
and turn them into digital cork boards, radically reducing the, the searching costs of connecting pilots and passengers. Right? Well, I'll talk about that in a second. But the FAA's response to this was it's dramatically different in the mode of communication. Therefore, you are something different. And just in an ad hoc legal interpretation, changed all of the rules overnight on, on flight now, which I think has um, demonstrably negative impacts on innovators and entrepreneurs' ability to build products that create immense value for people using them. So how does this change the game for aviation, flight sharing? I think in a number of ways. So as, as Randall mentioned, I, I live in northern Utah now. And I had to drive past two airports to get the Salt Lake City Airport to fly here for the event today. Now, it would be amazing if I could have turned that hour and a half drive. My flight was at 9.30. I have an hour and a half drive. So I mean, I'm getting up at 4.30 AM to make a 9.30 flight. You could imagine how, how much better my morning would have been if instead of an hour and a half flight, or an hour and a half drive, I had a 15-minute flight. Just a quick hop in an airplane and fly you know, 100 miles south and be at Salt Lake City Airport. Dramatically change my ability to get anywhere I want uh, in, in the world, really, from, from northern Utah. And, and I think it's important to keep that context, not just you know, for me personally, but you know, we call most of America flyover country for a reason. Right? These are where planes fly over, not where they're flying to. And you have hundreds of airports and tens of thousands of airplanes just sitting around underutilized because our current regulatory framework is, is holding them back. Right? This is unleashing all of this idle capital that could be put to productive use to connect rural America with the rest of the world in a way that they haven't been able to be connected before. Now think if you in sort of a multimodal way, you pair flight sharing with supersonic flight. Well, gosh, now all of a sudden I'm from Logan, Utah. I could be anywhere in the world in you know, a much, much shorter time than let's say it takes me to get there now. Um, so you're looking at the impacts here. And we don't just have to imagine what, what the impact would be. We can experience this in real time in Europe. So while flight sharing was grounded in the United States, it, took off in Europe. The, the European Aviation Safety Administration didn't look at flight sharing as a threat or a safety concern, but took an active role in partnering with these platforms to create norms and principles and compacts that increased safety, but allowed these platforms to continue to innovate and expand to the point now where you have these platforms are thriving in, in Europe and here in the United States, we're still having conversations on what could have been. Yeah. Matt, do you kind of have anything to add to that uh, discussion point that, so the, the legal impact of the Flight Now versus FAA decision was to restrict flight sharing, very simply, but uh, are there other practical imports and practical implications that result from the absence of flight sharing in the United States? Flyover country is a great example, the, the lower cost, the greater access for private airports. Um, are there under, other ways in which we can kind of see this lack of opportunity manifesting. Certainly. So I, I think one of the big things to realize um, that often gets overlooked is that with small planes, you're not flying to 500 uh, hub uh, airports. You're flying to over 5,000 airports. So unlike the, the hub and spoke model with the airlines, um, you get you, you get to access the regional cities much more easily. So I think that's one of the the biggest impacts that a service like FlightNow could have. Um, but there are many others. We're seeing a, a big issue where the US has always been known to have the best flying uh, infrastructure of the world. I mean, we have more airports, we have more pilots, but that's changing. We're losing a lot of our regional airports every single year. And our pilot numbers have been dropping by almost 50% since the 80s. So we need to do something to change that, to keep this vital resource that we have. And by making flying cheaper, easier to do, and have it touch more people's lives, I think that's a huge way of how we can make that happen. Yeah, and I would also think of, of flight sharing as, as an on-ramp for people who would otherwise be pilots but can't afford the cost. So the impact of passengers that you know we, we've both mentioned now, and, and you've mentioned this briefly, you know, even in your own story as a 
as a broke college student. But I think to keep this in mind, you know, flying is an expensive hobby. I mean, if you're renting uh, an airplane, you know, it could be upwards of $150 an hour to fly. So if you have your certification or your license and you want to re remain current, you have certain amount of, of flying hours you have to keep up uh, on a regular basis, so many takeoffs and landings. You know, you have to continue to fly to remain current with the FAA. And so you have to incur this cost on a regular basis. And flight sharing was a way to, to, to share those costs. As, as Matt mentioned, this wasn't you know, anyone profiting off the flights. This was pro rata share. So the FAA regulations all along have said you, know, you cannot split any more than the pro rata costs of, of the flight between the pilot and the passengers. Uh, so that, that doesn't change with the, the flight now model. The only difference was using, a, using a, a smartphone to make it much more efficient for someone to find a, a person to, to match with, as opposed to having to go back and forth to the airport and call people and arrange you know, flights or, or what have you. Um, so this is a way, I think, to really create an on-ramp for, for potential pilots to not only get their initial certification, but maybe even continue to grow and get advanced certification as they fly more and more. Exactly. And, and that's what people did uh, before the internet. People were, who wanted to get into aviation, they would be hanging out at the, uh, the airports and looking at those cork boards and seeing who's going flying. But the next generation of pilots, they don't do that. They're on the internet. And we need to be where they are to be able to capture that market and get them into aviation. Okay, so uh, you had, I know you had mentioned a bit ago how the, uh, the European model's working, but could you guys go into a bit more depth about kind of how the, the European innovation in the space and the regulatory space works compared to the United States? I know we have a full blockage here through the FAA, but how is, has, has Europe been successful in this? How, how does this model work? Yeah, Europe has been incredibly successful in this market. So we, when we get shut down by the FAA and had gone through the legal process uh, here, um, about a year after, uh, maybe a little bit less, uh, the European aviation uh, regulatory um, regime, they started looking into this. And there were a number of FlightNow clones that had started in Europe. And together, they formed this coalition where they allowed flight sharing uh, and ran it as an experiment. So they wanted to make sure that it was safe. They wanted to make sure that uh, this would not adversely impact the, the airspace. And so they, they created a, a set of questions that they wanted to answer with this trial. And they started the trial. And it was limited to just four-seater planes. You had to share your costs. The pilots could not be profiting. And it went so well that they've now expanded the practice. It's now up to six-seater aircraft. And they're doing over 1,000 flights a month. So it's really just taken off there, quite literally. And uh, it's really upsetting that we don't have that here. Yeah, and I think to, you know, this is happening across Europe. So you're talking, you know, thousands of pilots and passengers connecting in real time. And you can write, Wingly is just one example of this. Um, you can go to, after this, you know, you can all Google this on your smartphones or whatever and, and look this up. There are flights being posted right now um, across Europe um, where people are, are connecting in real time. And the, the safety administration, the European Aviation Safety Administration, the EASA, they, they took an active role as a, as a partner in this in creating best practices and standards for the platforms to adhere to, to ensure that pilots had checklists, that passengers understood what those, um, what those best practices were so they could identify if a pilot wasn't adhering to them, and really took an active role in promoting safety as opposed to um, trying to, to shape it as it's happening in real time, saying this is, this is what it, it should look like. Now platforms figure out how to make it safer. And I think it's just dramatically different than the, the FAA's approach to it, which all along, so before flight now, people were sharing their flights on, um, on Facebook, right? You can look at the legal opinions that the, the FAA has been issuing to people asking for clarification to, um, to comply with the, the FAA's existing interpretations of flight sharing. And what they're saying is, is you have to do things and then we'll tell you whether or not right. you're compliant. It's literally on, not only on a case-by-case -case basis, but it's an ad hoc ex post. You do something, 
um, and then we'll tell you whether or not what you did was right. And that's no way to encourage innovation. That's no way to provide a framework for entrepreneurs to actually build meaningful products for, for consumers. And in this case, you know, you have pilots and passengers, a two-sided market. And you see the difference, the stark difference in Europe versus uh, the United States, right? Flight sharing isn't banned in the United States, just digital flight sharing is banned. And yet, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, the cost of engaging in the, the analog method of flight sharing is, you know, just so time intensive that people aren't doing it, right? And innovators aren't able to improve on that process. And, and I think the craziest thing is that when we brought up this issue in the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, the judge even asked the FAA, you know, how many friends would you be allowed to have, or you know, when does sharing on Facebook become holding out, or when would you meet the criteria of being an airline? And the FAA responded saying, well, it depends on how many friends you have. And that decides whether or not you're an airline or not if you're sharing your flight on Facebook. So it's really absurd what uh, the, the position they've taken. Yeah, I, I think that touches on the legal distinction that took place in the case that um, when these, these flights are held out to the public as if they were accessible for common purchase among the whole public, then one is a, a common carrier subject to those regulations. And when one is not held out there, not subject to said regulations. And, and that's where it got really interesting because there's certain criteria that you have to meet to become or to be classified as a common carrier or a, an airline. Think United, Delta. And we felt, and we, we believed based on the interpretations that had taken place before flight now, that pilots sharing the cost, the same as they did on a bulletin board, uh, couldn't possibly meet that criteria for a number of reasons. One, uh, they weren't accepting everyone who, who was looking for a flight, uh, but they were reviewing and would accept it only if they wanted to go on a flight with that person. Uh, and then two, they weren't profiting. The common law definition of this states that you have to be a major enterprise for profit. And that was not possible with, uh, with pilots sharing on flight now. In fact, if they did 1,000 flights, um, they, they would have less money than when they started. Uh, so it, it wasn't possible for them to, to profit by any means under, under that uh, regime. But this is where, in court, the FAA said, well, you're getting compensated, so we consider that to be for profit. Yeah, so to, to the FAA's interpretation, so the, the, the FAA issued an advisory circular in 1986 that basically said anyone holding out to transport persons or items from place to place for compensation is a common carrier. And with that came all sorts of legal requirements and all sorts of certification and licensing with that classification as a common carrier. Now, something that you mentioned earlier is that the, the FAA's interpretation of who is and is not a common carrier and then the, the Court of Appeals you know, approving that, that interpretation um, or upholding their interpretation contravenes hundreds of years of, of common law, right? So typically, you know, people would contract with one another to do this. And you, you aren't a common carrier if you're, you know, if I contract with you to, you know, fly me somewhere. I wasn't, you drive me somewhere. I'm not a common carrier. The, the common carrier definition was a set of defaults for people who aren't engaged in contract setting for themselves, the terms and conditions between themselves. And the FAA just takes these common law rules or these common law words and just turn them into something different. So you, you became this binary, you're either a private carrier or a common carrier. And the second you verge into being a common carrier, you're stuck there. And by the way, all of these requirements come with you. So in, in the case of, of flight now, what the FAA said was, because you are posting online, you're holding out. And you're transporting persons and items from place to place. And even though it's a pro rata share, it's still compensation. You're still receiving money. Therefore, you're a common carrier. And that's, that was it. There's no, there's no contracting around it. There's no, there's no wiggle room. And that, and that was it. And it, at that point now, um, you know, every private pilot now had to become a commercial pilot, right? So much, much higher bar to meet, um, which then left you know, for all intents and purposes, every single pilot in your platform, you know, out, out in the cold. 
And, and not just that, but it required a business aviation license. And in order to get that, you actually have to submit a business plan on how you intend to make a profit, which is impossible under this regime. <laughs> so it, it was really what they were asking for just did not make any sense. And the, the fact is, it's the same plane, the same pilot, the same passengers. Uh, they just communicated a different way, whether it was online or offline. And so, that totally changed the, the legality of the flight. So I kind of guess that brings us to our next topic point. Uh, is the FAA too risk averse? <laughs> um, what exactly are the risks that the FAA is concerned with? And how is, how is their model kind of adapting to meet the consumer preferences in this market compared to its assessment of risks? I don't know if you want to. <laughs> well, sure. So uh, I think the big one that people like to bring up is safety. And I think the, the last statement really addresses that is um, these are the same pilots, the same aircraft maintain the same way, whether they, the passengers found the pilot online or on a bulletin board. And currently it's legal on a bulletin board. So uh, to make the claim that the flight becomes less safe by the, the connecting of the pilot and passenger happening online just doesn't make any sense. Um, the flight is going to happen regardless um, it's going to be the same people, same route, nothing changes when it happens online. Um, however, when it does happen online, we can actually provide more insight to the passenger, more insight to the pilot. We can tell them, hey, you know, there's some bad weather up here. Um, have you seen that? We can give the pilot more resources to actually make the flight safer. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember at the FAA, you know, the, the fine men and women at the Federal Aviation Administration, they are a safety agency. First and foremost, their statutory charge is safety. They've been given that as their mission, right? They've been told, make you know, commercial civil aviation safe. Like, that's your job. And so there's no, there shouldn't be too much of a surprise that the, the agency prioritizes safety over everything else. I mean, that's what they're told to do by Congress, right? So some of this is, is, isn't just saying that the, the Federal Aviation Administration is too risk averse, but the charge that's been given to them by Congress makes them that way. So we've, we've talked a lot about the Federal Aviation Administration, but this is as much Congress doing this um, <laughs> as well. Would everyone please silence your cell phones? Thank you. Yeah, and giving them the charge to be safe, right? Saying, make it safe. And so that's like safety at any cost, right? And, and you have to remember, you look at the, you look at the data, like they're, yeah, general aviation relative to commercial aviation is, is unsafer, right? There are more accidents, there are more fatalities um, in general aviation than there, is, than there are you know, in big commercial flights. Um, the question is, what, what's the driving cause of those fatalities and those accidents? And can platforms like FlightNow actually reduce those accidents from happening as opposed to encouraging people to be less safe or take more risks in the flights that they take? And, and that's what's interesting and where I think the, the FAA sometimes misses the mark is that uh, they're looking often at the number of uh, incidents that happen, so the number of fatalities, the number of crashes, but that's not the number to be looking at because as you reduce the, the number of flights that happen, you're going to get less accidents. You're not improving safety that way. But if you can make the, the rate at which those accidents are happening, if we can reduce that, then you're actually making it safer. And I, I know we've worked together on some research on this. Uh, we, we looked at, we actually downloaded the entire NTSB database and analyzed NTSB. it to see what, uh, what is causing these crashes? And is there a way that we can restrict certain types of flights to make it safer? And the, the data is fascinating because you see that a very high percentage, uh, I think it was 75 or 80% of all accidents are weather related. So on flight now, if we know the weather, we can just say, all right, well, we'll cancel a flight if the weather is even looking marginally bad. Um, that right there. 80% of the flights. And then another 25% involve flights with experimental aircraft or self-built aircraft. And if we <laughs> eliminate those from the site as well, then that can, that can also make it safer. So th there are ways to dramatically uh, increase the safety in general aviation 
um, just by adopting technology. Uh, but instead, the FAA has taken the position of, well, you know, let's just keep having it offline, no data on what's going on, and, uh, and by restricting the amount of flights, then we're going to make aviation safer. And that's just not the case. Yeah, and, and it's also important to, to understand, you know, the, the NTSB that you mentioned, the National Transportation Safety Board, right? Like they're charged investigating accidents when they happen. So they have all this data on, on accidents. And um, a colleague of mine, Michael Kutras, and I have really dug into that data because over the past 20 years, the, you know, when people look at this, they say, well, the reduction, if you look at the decline in accidents and fatalities over the last 10 to 20 years in general aviation, it's sort of like you could eyeball correlation with a reduction in activity, right? We have fewer general, general aviation airplanes in the skies, and people sort of just intuitively say, well, of course, then we will have fewer accidents. But when you actually start to control for a number of factors, you find we are, in fact, getting safer, right? General aviation is, in fact, getting safer. And then you take into account the fact that, you know, an overwhelming majority of the accidents and the fatal accidents in general aviation are encounters with weather, these are people who are you know, flying into storms, mm-hmm. right? So once you take that equation out, you can make general aviation a lot safer, and platforms like FlightNow can do that, right? They can, they can auto-cancel flights if at any point in the route it's, you're, the pilot is going to encounter weather. Now contrast that with the analog, the, the physical corkboard model, where you go to an airport and you get a tearaway with a number, and then you call the pilot, and the pilot says, yeah, I'll, I'll totally fly you. I'm heading in the same direction. We'll, we'll do this next Tuesday, right? And then you sort of just trust the pilot, right? There's no one else there. There's no third-party sort of verification to ensure that you know, safety steps have been taken. There's a huge information asymmetry, right? You don't even know the... the the, the pilots. You don't even know that they are a pilot. <laughs> right? You're just assuming. You're taking them at their word where these platforms can verify. They can maintain data on flights. They can do the types of things. For any of you who took an Uber here today, they can do the same types of things that any of the other transportation apps are doing where you are gathering more data as you rate a, a pilot's or a driver's trip. So at the end of it, you know, FlightNow could say, look, we understand that you, you're current and you're and you have all of the basic requirements to be a pilot, but people don't like flying with you, right? You aren't, you just, you know, you're, you're just not, you know, the safest, you know, most enjoyable pilot. Therefore, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, politely ask you out of the system. I don't know what, you know, if you've ever encountered that, but these platforms can do this in a way that no one's controlling who's posting on the corkboard, right? So you're actually, by driving people off apps and back onto digital corkboards, you're increasing the likelihood that accidents are going to happen. You may actually be you know, furthering unsafe practices rather than you know, taking the European model and working with apps and platforms to encourage and promote safety in general aviation. So this kind of brings me to a different question. Since 2014, since this has kind of come up in the market space, has there been, have there been developments in the commercial aviation market that have kind of driven a need for this sort of sector to come through? Um, for example, commercial purchases of seats and block seating to make people feel in a certain way or another about where they're put or food or leg space or any of the, the little accoutrements that come with commercial travel. <laughs> well, who here enjoyed uh, having to go on their, their previous flight? Yeah, I, I don't think anyone did. <laughs> uh, it's... It's really, really just a bad experience today. And when you contrast that with private flying, uh, well, first look at the options, right? So you've got commercial aviation. It's low cost, but a really bad experience. Um, (laughs) Then you've got private aviation. So think like a private jet. Extremely expensive, but it's a really, really nice way to travel. You just walk right up to your jet. There's no security. You get there 10 minutes before the flight's supposed to take off. Uh, It's a much better experience. Um, And then you've got uh, ride sharing in aviation. And with small planes, this becomes really interesting because you could do something, say, Boston to Martha's Vineyard for maybe $70 round trip. And you get all the benefits of private aviation, but without the cost because you're splitting that. And that really makes it compelling. So uh, I think the other big thing about it is that you're doing non-hub. So if you're flying from 
uh, Boston to upstate New York, for example, um, you're going to connect through New York City. And then you're going to have to take another flight up because it's based on the hub model. But with small planes, they're flying to regional to regional every single day. And, if, and they're flying with empty seats. We just want to capture those empty seats and, and help fill, that, uh, uh, fill those planes. And before I, before I add to that, I do want to, what was the average cost when FlightNow was operating? What was the, the average cost for, the, for many of the flights that were posted? It was about $100. This is a relatively, yeah. <laughs> you know, all things considered, relatively like good luck finding a commercial flight for $100. But I would ask two questions, if I could pull the audience real quick, right? Oh, okay. um, two questions. How many of you have ever flown past your destination, right, to, to, to have a layover to fly backwards somewhere? Yeah, is, you know, <laughs> a third of the room. How many of you have ever been stranded at an airport by an airline that, you know, their pilots hit their limit? Or, you know, if you were involved in the Atlanta outage around Christmas last year, um, you know, where an electrical fire at the airport just shuts down the the entire airport, and basically, because it's a major hub for the eastern seaboard, it's like a week before Christmas, and people are just stranded in Atlanta. Right? Imagine instead of like sleeping at your terminal, you just got into your app, and now all of a sudden found an alternative to get you home. Right? Like very quickly, like hopped in an Uber and drove 30 minutes outside uh, of Atlanta to an airport where you you finished your trip. Right, so these aren't even in competition per se with one another. They're also complements, right? Like we mentioned before, for people who are flying, let's say, from, you know, driving from Logan, Utah to Salt Lake City and then flying from Salt Lake City to, to DCA, if we could, you know, shorten that drive by, you know, an hour and 15 minutes by flight. Also, on instances where, you know, there, there are, you know, mistakes or mishaps in the airlines and now all of a sudden you need an alternative, right? These are, these are, these are ways to improve choice and increase quality for, for consumers. I think in a way that, you know, getting stuck in a, a middle seat for four and a half hours just <laughs> isn't cutting it. Now, granted, you're not going to have a, a, a flight sharing arrangement that takes you four and a half hours or five hours. You're like, you're not going to do the DC to Salt Lake, right? But for these shorter flights, you, you can imagine, you know, just increasing people's choices if you could unlock all the regional airports even around the DC area. And now all of a sudden you're, you know, maybe even flying out of BWI or somewhere and flying in, in, into there, um, but having an opportunity to fly into Leesburg, for example, right? Um, just increasing the choice by one, you know, or two or three for even a place like DC, I think could have, you know, improved dramatically the customer experience for aviation in, in and out of the DC area. Matt, yeah, well, I, I think we see a lot of a pushback from the business aviation community who see flight now and flight sharing as a threat to, to business flying. But I, I think, Chris, you really hit the nail on the head there, is that we don't see it as that. This isn't an alternative to, uh, to commercial flying. It's, it's very different. Um, the, the pilot, they, they might say, oh, you know what, I... I wasn't that well rested, I'm, I'm not gonna fly today. Um, and that's okay. Uh, but what we're trying to provide is an alternative. You know, this is not something that's going to replace those cross-country flights, but it could get you from a regional hub to another regional hub. And that's something that the airlines are, are not good at today. So it's about consumer choice and having an alternative to get you to where you'd like to go. Uh, that's really what we're trying to achieve here. So, Speaking of uh, various interests, <laughs> I assume that the uh, Flight Now sagas didn't end at the Supreme Court denial of certiorari. Um, it appears that Senator Mike Lee has actually been quite interested in trying to find a, a legislative solution to the regulatory quagmire that, that appears to be where this, where this kind of ended. Um, are there other ongoing efforts for this? How has this kind of played out in the, in the legislative branch? And... Uh, as a corollary question, which I think you touched on a little bit, is is there a real regulatory capture perspective here? Is there is there a fear that innovation is actually going to be stymied by the power of extant interests that are entrenched? Yes, yeah, certainly. So after, uh, or in the process of uh, getting the appeal uh, through the court system, uh, when we started realizing that that wasn't going too well for us, <laughs> uh, we started looking at uh, legislative options. 
and we were initially working with uh, Representative Sanford's office and now with uh, Senator Mike Lee's office. And they see this as a, a simple solution where we need to just change the regulations and force the FAA to allow this kind of practice. One, just to bring us up to speed with Europe, but two, to unlock all these benefits that are currently uh, tied away from us by the FAA and the position that they've taken. So we, we started going about this process. We, we had a amendment written to, uh, to throw onto the FAA reauthorization bill. And we got an enormous amount of pushback uh, from, from various interests. I think the most shocking one was actually the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. Uh, we heard this and we're like, wait a second, are you know, the AOPA, the, the Pilots Association, they're against this? So we emailed them and uh, set up a meeting with their, uh, their head of policy. And uh, we get on the call and they had invited the National Business Aviation Association on the call and the Airline Association. So we're like, oh, okay, th this is why you're against it. Uh, you know, it was just very shocking to see that uh, lobbyist interests are, are stopping this innovation. And um, the uh, Senator Mike Lee's office, he told us that this is the reason why this is not moving forward. They are the ones blocking this from actually passing. Uh, so that's, that's really the, the big holdup now. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think just the, the, the sort of the legal landscape where we are right now. So I, I think one thing that, that we haven't mentioned yet, I mentioned this before with the FAA being a safety administration. They were given the statutory charge by Congress to regulate for safety, and they've done that very, very well, right? Um, and, but I, it, it also should be noted that the term common carrier that we've been talking about, and which is really the primary vehicle by which the the FAA um, shut down flight sharing was, you know, classifying all the pilots as, as common carriers. Or, it was something that Congress never defined in the act, right, in the Federal Aviation Act. The, there are all of these air, airport, you know, aircraft-related terms that are defined, and even the term common carrier is used in some of the other definitions in the Federal Aviation Act, but Congress never defined the term. Congress never said what was, who was and who is not a common carrier. And so this left it to the FAA. So the 1986 advisory circular that I mentioned before that laid out the four-part test, the transporting persons from place to place, holding out the transport persons from place to place for compensation, that's the FAA's definition of who is a common carrier. Congress has just left it to the FAA, and now they've taken that advisory circular and they've in, interpreted it and reinterpreted it through these ad hoc legal opinions that they send to folks like Matt when they build a platform and say, actually, you are a common carrier. And so the, the, the step that Mike Lee's office was trying to take was to define the term in law, is to say, you know what, this is an important term and it's clearly affecting innovation in, in aviation. It ought to be defined as opposed to letting the, the FAA just interpret for itself who is and is not a common carrier on this sort of, well, how many friends do you have on Facebook standard, <laughs> right? It's very difficult to shape aviation in that way when it's, you know, you send the tweet and then we'll tell you if you broke the law, right? Very, very difficult to do this. So the, 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 the Aviation Empowerment Act from Senator Lee's office would have first and foremost defined common carrier once and for all in the statute and provided clear boundaries for the FAA for who is and who is not in that box. Now you look at the latest version of the, the FAA reauthorization, and it does have flight sharing language in there. And what it, what it does is it gives a shot clock to the FAA to provide clear guidance for who is and who is not a common carrier in some examples. I would say the, the problem with asking the FAA to do this is the panel before this on supersonic flight, that's very clear guidance. Right? <laughs> they, they just said this very banning, right? Like just ban supersonic flight. Can't be clear, right? It's banned, right? So the, the, the issue with telling the FAA just be clear about your prohibition on flight sharing, it actually isn't going to encourage anything other than, you know, a clear restriction that still the FAA is able to interpret and reinterpret over time as it sees fit. So it, where we're at right now is sort of this amorphous sort of regulatory space where it's, it's only clear to the person writing the legal opinion at the time what the FAA's position is really going to be after it's issued. Um, 
and it's extremely problematic for innovation. It's problematic for the rule of law, right? That's no way to regulate. That's no way to, to go about, you know, making law in, in the United States on this sort of ad hoc legal opinion um, basis. And, you know, it's driving innovation to Europe. I can't speak much to the, the capture story as you can, but I do think, again, this is, you know, even the, the capture stuff aside, the FAA was told be a safety regulator and then not giving clear boundaries and they're doing exactly what they were told to do. I mean, this shouldn't really surprise anyone that the threat of, of risk, right? The, the FAA, no risk is too great to regulate away because at the end of the day, that's what they've been asked to do is to make aviation safe. Yeah, and you know, I think what's, what's interesting about this is they, on this amendment, the, the language that's in there, they call it the, um, uh, it, they refer to it as flight sharing, but what it really is is anti-flight sharing because we're asking guidance from the FAA, who we know is already against it. Uh, you know, what we're going to get back is a further ban or maybe a, a limit on how many friends you can have on Facebook to actually share it. Uh, what we're not going to get is actual flight sharing. And that's the issue with this watered-down language that, that we've gotten. And just a, a kind of a quick follow-up on that is, are you worried about kind of going the way of the, uh, the supersonic jet in terms of the FAA's uh, attention to statutory timelines for issuing guidance? Um, if anyone's not familiar, uh, <coughs> the FAA had a mandamus issued, which is a, a writ-compelling action at one point in time, to issue guidance on the supersonic jet because it had taken so long to do the guidance it was commanded to issue. Well, you know, I think that's, we're just getting further and further behind on Europe right now. So instead of saying, this is what we need, this is how we should define common, uh, common carriage, and this is flight sharing. If we're not doing that, which the current bill isn't, it's asking for guidance and it's asking for report. That's just delaying the process further while Europe is advancing and, and getting more robust with their flight sharing. So it's putting the U.S. in a really bad spot. And, and also in, in issuing the guidance, what the, the, the language says is the FAA is to give some examples. Um, now, it's really clear for maybe the three or four or five examples they give, <laughs> how they feel about it. But then again, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole way that entrepreneurs create value in society is, you know, finding opportunities that no one else has found to do something new and better than the way that things have been done before. Um, and so now you're still in this exact same position, even with the guidance for the sort of yet to be thought of approaches to flight sharing. It's right back exactly where we are, where it's the, you know, this mother may I approach of you describe a hypothetical to the lawyers and then the lawyers tell you, well, maybe, maybe not. It really just depends. And we, uh, when we initially were working with the FAA on this and trying to figure out how can we structure flight now to work within the spirit and the uh, the regulations that existed, uh, we had submitted uh, a request for interpretation. So we submit an example, and they'll come back to us and tell us whether that uh, whether they feel that's legal or not legal. And when we actually we sat down with the FAA to uh, once they had made it clear that they did not like the model that we had chosen, uh, we said, all right, well, you know, can we have a conversation about a different model that that would allow flight sharing and, and work with a way that that the FAA would feel safe, that a way that we can share data and make aviation better. And uh, they recommended that we submit another example and wait six months for a response. And <laughs> if they don't like that one, then we can do it again. So it, it was just not, they weren't willing to work with us. They weren't willing to, uh, to help, uh, help innovation. All right. Well. With that, we will turn to the audience Q&A portion of the moderated discussion. Uh, if everyone could please wait to be called on, wait for the microphone to be brought to you so that everyone who's watching online and in the room can hear and announce your name and affiliation, I would be very appreciative. Sorry. Gabe Goldberg, freelance writer. In struggling to understand what the FAA had in mind, but besides lobbying and regulatory capture that led them to not like flight. Now, I wondered if TSA and external influences from the FAA contributed to the FAA's hostility to what you were doing. And the other question is sort of a, th a thought experiment. Suppose instead of doing this online, you had done it by telephone, where pilots could call a number and register flights and passengers could 
call a number and request flights as sort of a Luddite approach to, to what you were trying to do. Um, how the, can, can you hypothesize how the FAA would have thought about that? That's a great question and something that we actually asked the FAA. That, that's what led to their response. So we said, you know, where is this line? Uh, we agree that I can post on a bulletin board. We agree that I can, I can call up one friend. How many friends can I call up before this becomes an issue? If I call a stranger, does that make a difference? And it seems like that was the angle they were trying to take, even though it's not described in the, uh, in the law. They were trying to make the case that, well, with friends and family, it's okay, but with a stranger, it's not. That's what they were trying to say, even though it has no impact on the safety of the flight. Um, that's the approach they were taking. And, and again, when we said, well, where is this line of can I call, can I email, how many people can I include, that's when they said, well, send us another request for interpretation. We'll get back to it in six months. What about TSA? Uh, sorry, and uh, TSA, we did not hear any, um, any pushback from TSA. Um, there, we didn't really hear any pushback on, on security at all because, again, we're not changing the nature of the flight we're just changing how they connect. Um, so we, we did not get any pushback on that. Um, Willem van Latem, uh, I'm with the Dutch Embassy. Uh, you mentioned Europe a lot uh, concerning your flight sharing uh, thing and with Wingley, <coughs> and we've been looking into that a lot. Um, but with Wingley, pilots are not allowed to make a profit. Uh, so my question to you is like, how big do you see the market for flight sharing? As for example, with Uber, uh, Uber, uh, there's a profit for all parties involved, like drivers win, I win because I got here cheap and Uber gets a share. But with flight sharing, uh, your supply is kind of limited to pilots willingly to fly out. How do you see that in the, in the future in Europe and even if it's get regulated here in the US? Yeah, I, I think there's tremendous opportunity for growth. Um, if you compare commercial airplanes, they're in the air almost 70% of the time. It, it's really, really a high percentage that those planes are flying. And if you contrast that to general aviation, you can just go to any airport and you see it just covered with airplanes. And most of them aren't flying. So there is so much potential to get those planes in the air and get them flying. The issue is the rising costs. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a decline in the number of pilots and the biggest issue is the rising costs. Now, if you talk to any pilot and say, would you fly more if it were a quarter of the cost? I, I would be surprised if the answer was no. And that's where we can really drive uh, the industry is we, we can get more flights happening. We can uh, help general aviation help out these local airports by making flying cheaper. And, and I would add to that, if you look at the European experience, I mean, all you've seen is growth in flight sharing since the, the platforms arrived. And they continue to grow, and you're, you're getting tens of thousands of users. Um, I think, yeah, where is it? Like tens of thousands of pilots. I think we're upwards of, you know, 100,000 connections. <laughs> like they're just like really, really growing fast. I mean, the, the commercial viability um, long term, I'm not sure if that's a question regulators should be concerned with. I mean, this is, even if this is people just not even pro rep, Pro rata share. I mean, like whether or not profit is made, um, shouldn't be too much of a concern to the to the regulators. The underlying question should be: Is it fundamentally unsafe, right? And, and I think when you look at the the role that platforms can play, you look at the fact that you've had flight sharing in Europe now for four years, and you haven't had a single in any of these platforms. You haven't had a, a, a single accident fatality. Like they just they're they've they've been exemplary. Um, in, on that regard. And I think that should be the chief concern among regulators, um, not so much the, you know, how does this impact the commercial viability of other platforms? Or even what does this do, you know, what is the long-term commercial viability? I think at the end of the day, these, these agencies are safety agencies, and that should be their concern, regardless of if it's the NATA or the commercial airlines or private pilots, that safety is ultimately what we're after. Okay. Have you thought about talking to the Institute for Justice, whether they could support your case? 
we did speak with them. Uh, we had already been working with Goldwater, the Goldwater Institute at the time. So they've been helping uh, really push the issue. And, uh, I'll go over to... Thank you, uh, Brent Score at Mercatus Center at GMU. Uh, two questions, if I may. One, are, are flight sharing operators classified as private carriers in Europe, or are they common carriers with waivers or, or something else? And, and two, related, why go through the heavy lift of imperfect legislation on this when it, when it seems like the, the issue is this bizarre interpretation uh, by the FAA of what common carriage means? And so. You know, why not persuade the administrator that, I mean, this is a bizarre interpretation. If, if they're trying to get safety, I'm, I'm sure they have tools to, to uh, go, go after it that way. Yeah, so uh, first question on Europe. Um, and sorry, can you, you repeat the first part of your question? How are they classified in, in Europe? Are they common carriers with waivers or are they private carriers or, or something else? So they operate uh, similar to Part 91 here, where they are a, just a private pilot flying recreationally. Uh, and that's how the classification works here as well, is they're just private pilots sharing their cost. Um, there's a specific line that's an exemption to compensation when they're just pro rata splitting the cost. Um, so th they're not a, a business operator at all. They aren't here, they aren't in Europe. Um, they're just they're just sharing the cost, um, so that's the really the the big thing there. And to the second question, I think maybe you know this sort of um, requires a question. From the time that the the request for interpretation was answered um, to the time the Supreme Court denied cert, was it a matter of twenty four months? It, it was it was at least two years. Two yeah. years. So it was two years in court. Um, both at the, the district court and the court of appeals, and then at the the, the Supreme Court for you know, for two years, right? Three levels. I mean, the, the FAA has demonstrated that they're going to steadfastly stand behind this interpretation, right? So the question of like, well, maybe just convince the FAA that what they've done is backward and they should change it. I think the FAA has, you know, since 2014. Now we have four years where they haven't taken a step in any direction other than the one they were already heading into. So I think there's been plenty of opportunity for the FAA to reverse course, you know, throughout the course of the litigation, throughout, you know, both the Senate and the House contemplating what to do on flight sharing. Um, the FAA being looped in, I think, the entire time. I, you know, there are plenty of opportunities for the FAA to be like, you know what, actually, we are going to reconsider. They haven't done that, so your question of like, why not just, you know, talk to the administrator? I think they've demonstrated you know, their, their support for their previous interpretation and their unwillingness, I think, to turn it around. And if you think about what that does for innovation, I mean, we haven't been able to raise additional funding. I mean, the only reason that we're able to still keep fighting and the reason I'm here today is because I care about this issue personally as a pilot. I, I want to see this succeed. Um, you know, we've, we've been really, uh, really lucky to have um, all of the people who have helped us pro bono of just wanting to help out and, and care about this issue. Um, but, I mean, it, it's been four years. We, we haven't been able to raise additional investment. Um, we haven't been able to work on this full time. It, it becomes really difficult for new companies to, uh, to create new things when you've got this type of uh, position from the FAA. Uh, thank you, Dave Rubinowitz. Uh, I don't understand exactly how FlightNow operated. What did FlightNow provide its users that they couldn't get from Facebook? And what was the business model? Sure. So FlightNow was effectively an online bulletin board, um, it, similar to Facebook in that sense. But what we did was we provided the additional verification of the pilots. So instead of just seeing their profile with a uh, a photo of a plane on it, you're seeing that uh, they are an actual pilot. You can see how many hours they've flown recently. You can see their reviews. So it, it created uh, a, a place where the, 
the pilot was actually verified. So I think put, just put in context the way flight sharing happens now in the analog sense, right? I mean, I mean, the value proposition for flight now is to dramatically reduce the search cost. So if I want to, to engage in flight sharing now, I think I'd have to drive out to Leesburg from here, look on the bulletin board, find some names, you know, the old school tearaways, right? Where it's like, I'm, I'm ripping this away. I'm calling people. I'm trying to arrange this. You know, there's no real efficient process to doing this in the current analog format. So the the digital format of this, the digital corkboard is one where the search costs, the transaction costs of finding pilots and passengers dramatically reduced to, to, to make connections more efficient and thereby increase the amount of these connections, right? To make it easier for people to find one another without having to drive out to an airport on the off chance that they might not see any, you know, anything posted at all. I mean, you're taking a huge risk in terms of your time, you know, to even try to make that connection in the current analog format. And to put that in context, there are currently 5 million flight hours per year with commercial airliners. In general aviation, it's 25 uh, million flight hours. So there's a, and granted, those are smaller planes, but there is a tremendous opportunity even just to put people on those empty seats. So that's what we're trying to achieve. And I, I'd love for this, even if it could be legal on Facebook, but it, we don't even have clear guidance on that today. It, this points out all of the problems with administrative law that's often reft of uh, due process. Uh, have you considered reframing this uh, so that uh, you, you leave the FAA out, just have an information service like an employment agency or a dating service, so to speak? Uh, the uh, Uber and... Uh, um, Couchsurfing and all of these places are currently running into all kinds of problems uh, of people telling them to shut down and they just uh, answer the mail uh, of the people who are telling them to shut down and keep on keeping on. Uh, have you considered doing that? There's also the uh, medical transport that uh, uh, doesn't charge at all. They just, uh, the pilots are doing the same thing you're doing. Uh, say, uh, however, if you like our service, here's a card for a donation where you can pay. And this, this would have cost you uh, $3,500 for a charter. Give us uh, $30 or whatever. Uh, can, have you considered doing something like this to uh, reframe what's going on with uh, draining the swamp of uh, the problems of administrative law? It, we, we haven't considered that. I, and the reason is pilots invest tens of thousands of dollars to get their pilot's license. The last thing we would want to do is to, to jeopardize that or to put them in a position where they might be subject to a, a restriction or get their license taken away. So the, the FAA is also very clear on their, their stance on compensation and on what may be considered compensation. So we, may, we made that very clear to our pilots that you can't accept a dinner, you can't accept a tip. Uh, we, we will help you to make sure that you are getting the maximum allowable amount of pro rata share, but no more than that. And that the, the FAA is very strict on that. So we, we wanted to make sure that we fell within those guidelines and there was no, you know, beating around the bush to, to avoid uh, that clarification. So, Chris. Oh, go ahead. Go, no. Well, so uh, you, you bring up a good point. There's a program called Angel Flight. And this is a program very similar to Flight Now, but uh, just scoped to people who are in medical need, who need to get transported somewhere and uh, can't, can't afford uh, an, an official method. So these pilots uh, are on this service, very similar to Flight Now in some sense, where uh, people who need a, a medical airlift can sign up 
and uh, just pay their pro rata cost of that flight. And they've actually gotten an exemption from the FAA to allow that type of operation. And there's another one called Young Eagles, which helps uh, young people get into flying. And it can help offset the costs for the pilots who are flying them. And uh, like having that, like these things exist today. Um, the FAA has taken this really odd position by banning it everywhere else and saying that safety is the problem. And just to add to that to your, your administrative law question, I mean, this is as much a deference issue as anything else. I mean, the 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 courts have, have, have given a lot of deference to the FAA over years. So, I mean, it is as much a, a judicial deference issue in an admin law as it is anything else at this point with the FAA. Yes. Um, that concludes our panel. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Uh,